0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com.
0: You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. This is Mel Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Before McDonald's or KFC, there was the Horn and Hardart Automat, a cafeteria-style restaurant where you could buy everything from creamed spinach to meat pie by putting just a few nickels into a slot. A new documentary film called The Automat features interviews with some of Horn and Hardart's biggest fans, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Colin Powell, Carl Reiner, and Mel Brooks. Here's Mel Brooks in the film.
2: Of course, when you say automat or horn and heart very few people know what you're talking about. But one of the greatest inventions and insane centers of paradise were these places that had little glass windows framed in brass with knobs. And if you put two nickels into the slot next to the windows, the windows would open up. And you could take out a piece of lemon meringue pie for 10 cents and you could eat it. And that was called the Automat.
0: That was Mel Brooks in The Automat. It's a documentary film by my guest today, Lisa Hurwitz. Lisa, welcome to Milk Street.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show.
0: Well, I loved your documentary, The Automat. In fact, I went to the New York one, and it was probably the last few years it was open. But it was just this amazing place. I'll never forget it. But we should probably describe what it is, because unless you're as old as I am, you, you don't actually remember being in one. So what was Horn and Art? When you walked in, what did you see?
1: Well, it certainly depended on what decade you were walking in, because... The heyday of horn and hard art was really the 1920s through the 1950s, and during that time, you would walk into this palace. It was huge. You would go to a counter. A woman would be standing there ready to change your dollar bills into nickels, and she like Mel says in the film, she would reach behind her without counting a thing and she would just give you 20 nickels for your dollar. So the the magic begins as soon as you, you know, you walk in the places, it's, it's beautiful. It's not like your typical restaurant. And then you go over to these little cubbies. The, The walls are lined with these vending machines and you put your nickel in a slot and you open the little glass window, and then you take your plate of food out.
0: And, and there was this magic, you know. I, I love the description of Horn and Hardart as there was some magic behind the wall, and, and even the coffee. Could you talk about that? Because that's so great. The coffee dispensers for a nickel.
1: So the coffee was again <laughs> unlike anything else. Of course, at the automat where everything is just so whimsical. The. Coffee comes out of a silver dolphin spigot, and <laughs> these dolphins were inspired by fountains that, to this day, you can still see in Italy, where the water would come from the dolphin's mouth.
0: Yeah, I, I just I love that. So Horn and Hardart started off with sort of lunchrooms. They, they were mostly baked goods, right? That was the, the beginning of Horn and Hardart.
1: They started off as lunchrooms. And I know it doesn't sound so revolutionary, but it was because before lunchrooms, you had saloons. And saloons were not appropriate for women. So these lunchrooms and the Horn and Hardart lunchroom started opening in 1888 in Philadelphia. They serviced both men and women. And this was important because women were joining the workforce, and they needed a place to go eat. And as the film covers, women were stenographers and women were a key element of office work. And office work is was this new thing that was helping you know, grow major cities like Philadelphia and New York City.
0: And when did Horn and Hard Art really become Horn and Hard Art? Was that the 1920s when it really came into its full expression?
1: So Horn and Hard Art, was really rapidly growing in New York City as soon as they opened that first automat in 1912 in Times Square. And during the Great Depression, which was a difficult period for most restaurants, the automat was doing some of its best business. So then you get into the 1930s and it's just, these are their golden days.
0: And we should just note for the record, uh, as you do in the documentary, that in 1953, They sold 10 million dessert pies and 6 million loaves of bread. So they were serving a lot of customers.
1: They absolutely were. They were the largest restaurant in America at that time. They were replaced by McDonald's, but this was revolutionary. They were one of the most early American chains, and they were providing consistent food across distances that were prepared in central commissaries. And like today, you know, this is kind of normal stuff. But back then, this was the cutting edge.
0: The Automat was often referred to, and Mel Brooks refers to it this way, sort of patriotic. There was a patriotism to Horn and Hardart. Yes. So why was the Automat the essence of being an American?
1: Well, Horn and hard art represented kind of America at its best. It was plentiful. It was high quality, it was pristine, it was welcoming and inviting, and it was just the town square in a way.
0: Yeah, and I think what really struck me is that, you know, people in top hats and people who are stenographers and people who have blue-collar construction jobs, for a long time, everybody went to the Automat. It, it was classless, and I and I think that is also essentially American, right?
1: It really was truly egalitarian, and it was definitely something that Mister Horn and Mister Hardart knew they wanted to do. That was the type of business they wanted to create. One of the reasons that I think this film is working so well right now is that. You hear somebody like Mel Brooks, and he's sharing these very personal memories that very much, you know, line up with your own. And it makes you feel connected.
0: We haven't talked about the food, um, which seems an oversight. You asked Mel Brooks about his favorite, and he loved the, the um, ham sandwich with the mustard. Other people talk about the baked beans or the Salisbury steak— were there items that really sold much better than others?
1: Well, for sure, the film, you know, hits on the biggies. Cream spinach, macaroni and cheese, chicken pot pie, all the pies. But the Automat just served such a long menu of items. They, you know, were kind of the opposite of fast food in this sense. You could go to the Automat and, you know, you could have whatever you wanted.
0: So let's talk about the decline. So when did the decline start, and why, why did it start, do you think?
1: The decline started in the 60s. The automats, they were depending on seven-day-a-week traffic. And when people left the city to live in the suburbs, they really became five-day-a-week businesses. And then also people's tastes were changing. People were looking for more healthy options. People were also willing to spend more on, you know, fine dining experiences. And the Automat was about thrift and abundance. And these were Depression-era values. They were not values of the Horn and Hardart customers of the 1960s and 70s, per se.
0: Mel Brooks really seemed emotional at times, remembering the Automat.
1: I'd say the moment where he got choked up probably was when he asked me for kind of an update, because he's he was asking me questions all along the way of our interview. You know, he was also interviewing me because he didn't know what had happened. He ate there and then, you know, it closed. And so he didn't know how it got from point A to point B. So I walked him through that decline. And, you know, at the end of that story, I told him, you know, he just... He just kind of sighs and he looks defeated and kind of broken hearted. You know, he didn't realize how good it was then, but now he misses it. And I think it's really validating for people to hear somebody that they really look up to, someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Colin Powell, Mel Brooks say, this was a very special, important, beautiful place and I cherish it. And This film really captures, for certain people, kind of the story of their life. And I know it's just a restaurant, but the film is about much more than a restaurant.
0: Lisa, it's been wistful, but it's been inspirational. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Lisa Hurwitz, director of the documentary film The Automat. The Automat is screening in select theaters around the country and will soon be available to stream online. You can find more information at AutomatMovie.com.
2: There was nothing like the coffee at the Automat. You would find a seat, hang up your coat and hat. And for just a shiny nickel, you taste what you could tickle. With that wonderful, magnificent, unbelievable, awesome coffee at the The Automat!
0: That was Mel Brooks performing At the Automat, which he wrote for Hurwitz's film. Right now, it's time to take some calls with my co host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also, author of Home Cooking One on One. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How about you? I'm good because I just spoke to a guy, James Hoffman, from England. He completely changed my mind about how to make coffee. Really? Yeah, and I I do French press. And the typical deal with French press is you grind it on the coarse side, right, the beans. You put it in the hot water, you stir it up, you let it sit three or four minutes, you put the plunger down, right? I've been doing that for 15 years. He said I was doing it all wrong, and I just, this morning tested his method. It was much better. So here's his method. It's great. You grind it medium, not coarse, which is very different than what everybody else says. You use 30 grams of ground coffee to 500 grams of water. And I did that. You put it in the French press. You fill it with hot water. He said, don't sweat it, whether it's 205 or 210 or 212. And let it sit for four minutes without stirring. So you get this, you know. Crust on top. Crust on top. After four minutes, stir it in, and then take a separate spoon and remove any little bits on the top. And let it sit another six or seven minutes. Another six or seven minutes, yeah. And then finally, with the plunger, you put it just so it's under the water, because if you put it all the way down, it stirs up the sediment. And I got to tell you, it was so good. What kind of bean? I like a medium roast. He says if you see oils on the outside of the bean, it's over-roasted, which I agree with. So a medium roast. And the other last thing he said was you have to get a good burr grinder because, you know, a cheap one just doesn't work very well. And the reason is the beans all have to be ground to the same size. If some pieces are too big or too small, the extraction's not even. Anyway, I got all excited. So that was the new French press. That's very
3: exciting. You know, the only thing— It's really good. I use a burr grinder. I use a French press— you know, I, and you just told me some different things I didn't know. But here's what concerns me. The total marination time is 10 minutes.
0: Yeah, but for the first four minutes, it's sitting on the top. Right. So but, it's really, it's sort of like a pre-soak, okay. like, like you do in a um, drip machine. Right. It's more of a pre-soak.
3: Okay. So then it's not so bad. So it's really only the six minutes afterwards where everything is mingling because, I'm sure you know, that French press is the highest in caffeine, because the coffee is just hanging out with the water. Every other way you make coffee, the water drips through it or goes through it quickly, or like espresso has less caffeine. That's fine with me. I love myself. But it's a great. Caffeine. I mean,
0: I we tried it this morning. I'm going
3: to have to try right? it
0: anyway. So yeah, was that was my, notes. my big event. Thanks for sharing. And by the way, check him out on YouTube, James Hoffman. Okay. You know he's a little obsessive, but that's why he really knows his stuff.
4: My kind of guy.
0: Okay, now it's time to take our first call. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: It's Carol from Sudbury, Mass.
0: How can we help you?
4: I was calling about kind of a basic question about fennel. I love fennel, but it seems like, you know, especially in the off season when you buy it at the grocery store, by the time you cut off the stalks at the top and you cut off the base and then you slice it sort of vertically and you have to get the core out, And then they say, don't use the outer pieces because they're sometimes kind of all beat up from the grocery store. There's like nothing left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a plot. (laughs) The fennel growers know that you need to buy more than one. How big are the fennel bulbs you're buying?
4: Well, you know, the grocery store doesn't often have a huge selection, but they're about a pound
0: each. Well, here's what I would do. Cut off the stock, which, by the way, you can use. It has a sort of anise flavor A friend of mine, Mark Bittman, uses it when he grills fish. He puts it on fennel. I would slice off a fairly thin amount of the bottom. Don't take a huge half-inch chunk out of it. And then uh, if you take the entire outer layer off, you've now lost 20% of your fennel bulb. So depending on the condition of it, I would sometimes slice off any brown spots or parts and leave the outer layer if it's in reasonably good shape. And that way you are only cutting off a relatively small part. You're not taking a huge chunk out of it. And then I would slice across. But when you buy it, find ones where the outer layer doesn't have big brown spots. I also use it in salad. It's my secret salad ingredient. Raw fennel is just terrific.
4: Yeah, I love it too. I'm going to try to grow it because I'm so fed up with, you know, losing half of it. Some
0: things end up in your supermarket in pretty good shape, but fennel does look like someone played hockey with it by the time it right. ends up. That's a good point. I don't know. Maybe that stuff's been sitting on trucks for three weeks or something. Sarah, do you have a...
3: Yeah, well, no, basically I agree with what Chris said, although you really can eat all of it. You could use them the way he suggested Mark Bittman did, but you could also just slice them really thin, right. and they'd still be perfectly edible, and the fronds are wonderful. You use them like you would like dill or it's something. like dill, yeah. But the other thing is we used to braise them at this restaurant mm. I worked at. We'd cut them into thick slices and then braise them, leave them attached at the root end, but we would use a vegetable peeler a to take a little bit of that outer layer off. Uh, the other thing I would recommend, I've been thinking about, it, <laughs> it's one of the things that keeps me up at night, is, so you've noticed that fennel has a grain, sort of like celery does. Yeah. And so right. I've done an mm-hmm. experiment. If you want to avoid sort of the stringiness, cut it across the grain. If you're going to use it in a salad and eat it raw, which makes it more tender. Okay. You know, if you're going to cook it, it really doesn't matter because it'll get tender anyway.
4: That's a great idea.
0: I cut across the width of it.
3: Yeah, which is you're cutting across the grain. But some people don't do that. So I think it's an important thing to point out. The best way to preserve some of it is use a peeler or a paring knife if you're better with a paring knife.
0: I use a serrated peeler because it's slippery and hard. yeah. The braising, by the way, is a great idea. It's like on oh. dive, like braising on dive. Oh, you know.
3: It is so yeah. good. We used to um, do these slices with whole cloves of garlic and then we'd add veal stock to it. and then we would puree the garlic with the veal stock and it would thicken it. and it was just mm. essence of yummy, tender Ooh, yes, fennel and with a hint of creamy garlic. It was so good. I think we're a fennel fan club here, I'd say, the three of us. Yes. Yeah, so
0: well, Carol, now we both have dreams of braised fennel <laughs> dancing, dancing in your our head.
4: heads. Yes. Yeah.
0: Thanks for calling. Oh, well, thank yeah. you
4: so much. Thank I you. really appreciate it. It's like speaking to cooking royalty, oh, you guys. Thank you. <laughs> well,
0: it depends which royalty <laughs> okay. these days. Yeah, really, you, you have, have to be careful.
3: careful. Yeah, uh, well, in a good way. Okay. Thank All you, right. Carol. Bye. All right. Bye. Take Bye. care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: This is George from Napa, California.
3: How are you? I'm
5: great. Thank you. I hope you guys are too. This is a real honor. I'm a big fan of both of
0: you. Thank you very much. Thank you. How can we help you uh, from a culinary point of view?
5: (laughs) Yes. I have tried (laughs) twice to make the pasta alla Grigia. Right. And my pecorino clumps into this mess.
0: congealed mess. Yes.
5: Uh, Maybe it's happened to you. I don't know, (laughs) but you described it perfectly. And I've tried twice, and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I sourced the guanciale. I have the real pecorino romano and uh, tried to do everything right with the
0: ingredients. You called it exactly the right time because we just spent three weeks making cacio e pepe 36 times, which is essentially the same recipe, more or less. And um, we found, of course... You know, pecorino and parmesan both are aged. They're relatively dry cheeses. And you have to do two things. When you cook your pasta, cook it in two quarts, not four quarts. And that means your water is going to be starchier, which is going to help bind the sauce properly. And number two, you need that water to be hot, like 185 degrees, which is the point at which the pecorino is going to melt. And if you don't get it hot enough, it's not going to melt properly. And so that's the second trick. The third is, there's a guy on YouTube who has this famous cacio pepe recipe, he's a chef, and he does it in a blender. He puts the pecorino and Parmesan in, whatever it was for cacio pepe, and then a fair amount of like a cup and a half or so, very hot pasta liquid, and puts it in a blender (laughs) and emulsifies it, and then finishes it up with some olive oil and other things, but the point is, you could try a blender with a cup or a cup and a half of that water, very hot, with the cheese, and blend it, and then put that in a skillet with a slightly undercooked pasta with more cooking water, another half cup or cup, and cook it for a couple of minutes, and that should do it.
5: Are you guys going to update your cacioca? Yes, we are, yes. Okay.
0: We've completely revised it. It's all done in one skillet now at one time. Oh, wow. But the trick is the temperature of the water because that cheese really needs to get properly melted
3: I'm staying in thank my corner you. over here because <laughs> I am I know nothing. Uh, but I, this is intriguing. I like this idea of the blender, too.
0: We'll publish our method soon, and uh, we'll send you a copy of the recipe, too. So
5: I'll be on the lookout. All I right. can't thank you enough. And next time, Sarah, I'm going to have some problem
0: that I can get your input
3: Oh, onto. you're very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. All right, it. George. Thank take you. Take care.
0: Thanks for calling. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to take your calls. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Bronwyn from Tampa.
0: How can we help you?
6: Well, today I'm calling about Pavlova. To preface this, I should say that I'm really not much of a baker, but last Father's Day, I made a uh, Nigella Lawson's New York Times strawberry pavlova, and it turned out really well.
3: Good.
6: And it was super easy. And it was so good, in fact, that my daughter and I polished the whole thing off and left my husband a very small slice. So nice. <laughs> now I'm wanting to make another one, but for significantly more people. Is it as easy as quadrupling all the ingredients? If I do that, there's going to be 16 eggs and five cups of sugar.
0: You have a standing mixer of some kind, I assume?
6: Yeah, I have a, a KitchenAid regular mm-hmm. mixer. I could do it in two batches because what I was also thinking, I'd like to make them into individual, maybe like eight pavlovas or nine And bake them, and that's where I just don't know what to do with the oven temperature and how long, because you bake it at 300 for an hour and 15 minutes and then just let the oven cool. But I think if they're smaller, you probably don't bake them for that long.
0: Well, a few things. 16 egg whites sounds like things are getting out of control because it's going to be hard to whip them evenly, and you're going to end up with egg whites above your whisk in the KitchenAid. I think doing in two batches makes sense. And in baking... Usually when you quadruple something, it's almost always a train wreck for whatever reason, so I would double it. I don't think you have to worry about the proportions of ingredients. I think with meringue, that's probably okay. The one thing you would worry about is the thickness. The thickness will affect the cooking time. You said 300 degrees, which sounds a little high for meringue. So it was an hour and 15 minutes, and then you just shut it off and let it sit for another hour or two or something?
6: Yeah, she preheats the oven to 350. You pop the... Pavlova right in there, turn the heat immediately down to 300, and it said bake for an hour and 15 minutes, turn off the heat, and let it cool completely in the oven. And it turned out perfectly as far as I was concerned. So, But obviously if they're smaller...
0: Again, check the thickness, but I would probably preheat the oven to 300, put them in, shove it down to 250. I assume these are smaller if you're doing individual ones. Let it probably cook for a couple hours, and then turn the oven off, something like that. That would be a typical meringue recipe. You know, look, if her recipe worked, and if the thickness ends up being the same, you're probably in pretty good shape.
3: Right. It seems like the proportion of sugar to whites was probably correct. When they were done, did they have any color on them, or were they still white? Or were they slightly golden?
6: They were slightly golden, which I liked. Okay.
3: Well, then that's a reason to keep the temperature the way she did it.
0: Uh, yeah, I'll but go. if her diameter is smaller, they are probably going to cook faster. Don't you think
3: the thickness is more important than anything else?
0: I think that's important. Like the
3: height, you mean? Yeah, the height. But
0: if she had a 9-inch cake pan and these are now going to be 4- or 5-inch individual ones, yeah. they're going to cook faster.
3: Yeah. I mean, listen, it worked the first time. So mm-hmm. I would double it. I wouldn't go any further than doubling because the egg whites won't get properly beaten. And I would do what Chris said. And um See how it so goes. Heat it to three hundred, go down to
6: two hundred and fifty. Right, and, and, and give it like two wait hours. Wait
3: an hour and a half. Yeah,
0: and, and then, then I just think turn it, it off. an hour
3: and a half you can quick check it to yeah. see if it's firmed up. Yeah, quick, just in and out. And then if it seems like it's firmed up, turn off the oven, leave it in. And if it hasn't, give it another half an hour and then turn off the oven and yeah. leave it in.
0: Sounds great. You, you need to get back to us to let us know, though. Yeah, this please is one of those do. That, this
3: is interesting.
0: Yeah.
6: Oh, yeah. I absolutely will. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks for calling. <laughs> okay, bye. It was great to talk to you, Bye.
0: Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Amico Davies transports us to Venice for a taste of Cicchetti. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allegash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
7: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine, since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and Realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do.
3: My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel.
5: My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite.
3: The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this, like, big pork shoulder with, like, salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house. And a little, like, scallion ginger sauce. It's, like, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection.
8: My other top choice was, like, a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up.
6: There's something about muscles with beer especially the white, that is just so good.
7: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food, so I think it's just really versatile.
6: I could imagine, like, something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice.
5: Pairing allagash white with carrot cake is a thing of beauty.
9: This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza? I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's
6: perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found
7: a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White.
5: (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it.
3: A lot of people use Allagash White in
6: like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime. That could be the beer. We
3: are very food minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is...
8: Yeah, that's really good.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
1: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Emiko Davies, author of Cinnamon and Salt, Cicchetti in Venice. Emiko, welcome to Milk Street.
9: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So, you know, I've been to Venice uh, more than a few times, and it's always, of course, magical. But let's go way back in history, like to the 13th century, sort of Marco Polo's time. It was really the center of culture in the Mediterranean. So, why was Venice a big deal is it because of its location or or what?
9: Venice had um a really strong maritime history, and in the Middle Ages, they were not just um, explorers, but they were importers. So they were they had really become like the pantry of Europe. They had like exclusive trading rights with Constantinople, for example, so they were the only Western country at the time that would, be able to have that gateway to the east, and so they had built up this little empire also through gaining colonies. They had, you know, colonies around the Dalmatian coast. They had Crete. They had Cyprus. They had, um, you know, all the way to the Middle East. When you look at a map of, you know, historical Venice, it was like the whole Mediterranean.
0: The other thing you you, you write about in Cinnamon and Salt is that. The, the cultural mix was really interesting. You say bakeries were run by Albanians while the butchers were Croatian. Armenians taught Phoenicians how to cook rice. So uh, the mix of cultures and cuisines was fairly extraordinary, right?
9: Yeah, this is one of the things I think makes Venice so incredibly unique in the Italian peninsula because Venice was this city that had, you know, the, this constant flux of people from all parts of the world the known you know world in europe at the time coming through it you know in a lot of venetian dishes you'll find the base of the dish is like a slowly cooked onion there's lots and lots of onions in venetian cooking and that is a technique that many food historians think comes from turkey also some vegetables like artichokes eggplants pumpkins those kind of vegetables come from jewish cuisine in venice and rice from the armenians venice was like a collector of ingredients and spices and dishes and these things all sort of left their mark in venice and if you look closely enough you'll you can see them still
0: so let's get to the the topic at hand which are these the small plate tradition cicchetti which is a very, it's a little bit like Meze, I guess, but but not quite. So could you explain what this tradition is? Where do they come from and and how it's different than, let's say, being in Spain with tapas?
9: Yeah, people often liken chiquetti to tapas, and um, and the Venetians are very sensitive about that. You'll see some bars that have a sign on the front saying, this is not tapas. <laughs> um, I think that the idea of, you know, a small bite is something that you'll find in cuisines obviously all over the world they're like hors d'oeuvres or they're like aperitivo that you'll have in other Italian cities. But what makes Cicchetti very Venetian is the tradition of the actual bar itself which is called a baccaro and in these places, these little wine bars, you'll find counters full of all these different offerings. Cicchetti actually comes from the Latin word chiccus which means small thing. So you can kind of trace back this tradition of standing in a bar with a little bite to eat and a little glass of wine to more or less the Renaissance, where Venice had these ostiery, which today an ostiery is something that you would think of as a restaurant, but in the Renaissance this was more like an inn or a pub where you had um, you know food and drink on the on the ground floor, and on the floors above you would have rooms for foreigners and people passing through travelers merchants and because the government was also a little bit suspicious <laughs> and in general there was a lot of um, sort of surveillance of the population happening in in Venice around that time they took away all the tables and chairs they didn't want you to sit down because they were worried that if you were sitting over a meal then you would have you know a lot more opportunity to conspire against what? the government <laughs> that's crazy so, <laughs> that, that. So no sitting and eating.
0: <laughs> really is that really true is that they thought that they would end up with a political uprising cuz people were sitting and talking?
9: Yeah, yeah. So this was a law <laughs> throughout Venice. So you had to stand and eat. Huh. And once you take away the table, um, you know, the shape of the food and the way you can eat it hmm. is is different. You have to have, you know, finger food. It has right. to be on a stick maybe. And that's still how you see cicchetti today. There are these little fried things or maybe it's like a half-boiled egg with a little toothpick through it. And they are bites that you can eat, you know, without necessarily a plate <laughs> without knives and forks. And, you know, you can eat them standing. And that's still how cicchetti are usually eaten in Venice.
0: Well, you, you had a list of, of sort of simple ones, which I loved. And, and I let's just go through a few because th- they are really two different things that go together in an interesting way, right? So gorgonzola with an anchovy or a slice of mortadella with a pickled pepper or Prosciutto with olive pate, or you know, so there are two things that really pair in an interesting way. I realize they have more sophisticated stuff too, but I really like that as a as a fundamental concept for a cicchetti.
9: Yeah, actually, the cicchetti are um, are really very simple. I mean, sometimes it's just literally a half-boiled egg with nothing even on it, hmm. or or it could be even a boiled potato, and I love that because those are very simple things that you know make you feel satisfied are comforting and filling. And the other thing is that some of the traditional cicchetti that you see today, you know, really come from like a time when it was really important for whoever was the host of the wine bar to be, you know, making sure people were buying glasses of wine. Right. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure you've got things that make people thirsty. <laughs> so anchovies, um, gorgonzola, those kind of salty foods you know, would would make you reach for another glass of wine, but also things like a hard-boiled egg. If you're eating one of those, you know, without anything to wash it down, you're going to find it hard to swallow it.
0: Well, as you said in the book, salty, spicy, or hard to swallow. And then I love this <laughs> yeah. quote, a crostino with gorgonzola guarantees at least three drinks.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: so there's a method to the madness. So take us through. So you walk into a wine bar. You say it's not like tapas, it's different. What does it look like? When do people go? You mentioned they're open in the morning.
7: Uh, How does it work?
9: So a chiquetti bar, like any time goes, they open from early in the morning. Usually if you go to the ones around the market, which are where the very traditional chiquetti bars are, those are open at like 8.30 in the morning. And partly this is to service also the people who are actually at, you know, the market's sellers. So the fishermen who've been up since you know, who knows what time and market sellers as well. You know, cicchetti are appropriate at any time of the day. So that's another thing that makes it different, I think, from tapas or, or other aperitivo in, in Italy where it's more an evening thing. And when you go in, they're often small places. Some places have like a kitchen as well, but many of them, they do all their preparation at a countertop and you'll have behind the glass you know, this array of different cicchetti from artichoke bottoms to crostini with all kinds of toppings. Sometimes the crostini is a grilled piece of polenta, but usually it's a slice of baguette where you'll have toppings from baccala mantecato, which is a whipped cod. That's a really, really, really classic Venetian cicchetto. Uh, There might be some sade and saor, which are sardines that are dressed in like a vinegary, onion sort of mixture, And there'll often be some fried things, so pulpette, which are deep-fried meatballs. Uh, You might find mozzarella in carrozza, which is a fried cheese sandwich, essentially. There might even be, like, fried calamari or roast potatoes on a stick. That's another one that you might see. And then there's usually an array of fresh seafood as well.
0: So are these on small plates, on the bar, and you just pick what you want. Uh, how's the food presented?
9: Yeah, they're usually grouped together, all the different types, and you can see them through the glass counter. So, you know, even if you don't speak Italian, you just point, you know, at each one that you want, and they'll put them on a plate for you, and um, and away you go.
0: Could you talk about Tardivo? I didn't know about this. It's a form of radicchio, and how it's <laughs> how it's finished off, it's an its an amazing story and one I, d- I did not know.
9: Yeah, right. The radicchio is one of my absolutely favorite vegetables, and the Veneto is famous for it. You get really spoiled with the options of radicchio um, in, in Venice because you can find not just the the round one, which is called chioggia, um, but you can find the tardivo, which is like an elongated shape, and um, has, like, long, curly, beautiful leaves that, that are sort of as thick as a finger. Um, and those are all grown in, in the Venator region only.
0: Well you, you, well, you wrote that it's grown outside, and then the first frost, the leaves are burned. And then in late November, I didn't know this. they bring them inside with the roots, put them in large pools of running water in complete darkness for up to three weeks. And then the plant yeah. begins to grow again, and then you have different color leaves. I mean, it's just an amazing process.
9: Yeah, it's a it's a labor of love, really. It's like an art form.
0: So what's going on in Venice these days? Uh, Venice has had its share of problems, obviously. Is is it a very vibrant culture? Is it a bunch of older, wealthier people? Does it have a sort of a new generation coming up? Are these Cicchetti bars part of that? What's the context here?
9: Um, so Venice has quite a few different issues going on. Um, I think it's a city that people are sort of looking at at the moment as a sort of like what's going to happen to Venice, um, partly because of the rising waters and climate change, um, a lot because of the effects of over-tourism
6: right.
9: and visiting Venice you know, right after lockdown in in 2020, which is when I first went to research this book, what was really interesting was that, uh, you know, so much of Venice is made for tourists, um, especially around, you know, sites like Piazza San Marco, which, by the way, was completely empty. Um, You know, most things absolutely just closed for for months um, in 2020. Uh, And then, the other thing that Venice has, though, is is these great pockets, these beautiful neighborhoods, where there is a really strong community, and where there is life, and it's very, very vibrant. So, I I was staying near Piazza San Marco, and I would walk from these like it felt like a ghost town, and head up to Cannaregio, which is a great little neighborhood in the northern part of Venice, and you could barely walk down the fundamenta from how mm. packed it was with people sitting at wine bars, drinking, talking. A lot of them are younger people. Venice has, you know, a large university population as well. And Venice has these pockets and plenty of them where even during a high season, the touristy season, you might be like on a street with like a crush of tourists, but then, you know, you get lost or you you, you turn off of the beaten path and a couple of streets away you'll find you know, a campo, a piazza where it's just the locals and there's kids kicking a ball and uh, old ladies sitting on a park bench and um, I, I, really, I really love that about Venice it's almost like like two places in one
0: Emiko, thank you very much uh, and the next time I go to Venice I will be rushing off to the Cicchetti Bars, thank you
9: You're welcome, thank you
0: That was Amiko Davies. Her book is entitled Cinnamon and Salt, Cicchetti in Venice. In addition to Cicchetti, there are many things that the casual tourist does not know about Venice. It was once an independent empire that lasted a thousand years and reached all the way to the Balkans, including Croatia. Venetian masks are tourist items these days, but during the Middle Ages, They were both a means of hiding your identity when doing something a bit sketchy, as well as a practical form of PPE for doctors treating patients during the plague. On a sadder note, there are only 60,000 local residents today, and many predict that there may be none left in just another generation. So if Venice does not succumb to rising waters, tourism will finally destroy a wealthy empire that lasted a thousand years. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman tells us why the world deserves a better vegetable sandwich. That's right after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, Available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner
6: three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe— Greek meatballs with tomato sauce. J.M., how are you? I'm great. So I was going to go to Crete, uh, <laughs> but you took my place at the last I minute. I did. I did. Uh, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. But you had some great food, and you came across Greek meatballs with tomato sauce, sort of a meze dish, I guess, which I did not think was going to be one of the stars of the trip. Turned out to be exactly that. So what are they, and where did you have them?
10: Yeah. You know, it was an unexpected find. I did not actually go looking for food. I went looking for wine, frankly. I, I met a lovely couple, Alexander Manousakis and her husband, Afshin Molavi, and they run a, a family-owned winery. You know, it's a very small operation and they do terrific wines, actually some of the best wines I had on the island. They just invited me over for lunch And they just started rolling out all this amazing food. And i got to say, you know as well as I do from your travels that the magic is in the moment. You know, the food, of course, has to be good, and it was. But it's in the magic of meeting people, becoming friends... Drinking wine, sharing food, sharing stories. And that's exactly what this afternoon was. It was really just a wonderful time. You know, we started off with this Cretan salad uh, that's kind of their version of almost an Italian panzanella, like a bread salad. And then we moved on to these gigante beans cooked in a tomato sauce. It was phenomenal. Then we moved on from there to a beef stew with tomato and orzo. It was lovely. But, as you say, the star wore these meatballs. They're kind of oblong-shaped meatballs called suzukakia What I loved about them is they had a lovely, like, kind of browned crust on the outside because they are browned in a skillet before they're simmered in a tomato sauce. But they were so wonderfully spiced... And you know they had garlic and mint, oregano, cumin, paprika, grated onion, and they just came together so nicely. And then they were cooked in this really bright, kind of naturally sweet tomato sauce that they had done very little to. And, and that's what I loved about it. You know, They let the tomatoes kind of speak for themselves and act as an accent to these well-spiced meatballs. It was just a wonderful combination. Well,
0: as you travel around the world, you can eat chicken soup— <laughs> almost everywhere, and some form of meatballs. <laughs> and the way they spice and prepare them tell you so much about where you are in the world.
10: Right, exactly. It's
0: so interesting that there are these common recipes, but they're actually very different.
10: Right. Well, everybody kind of puts their own inflection on it. And in this case, you know, it's a the tradition is a combination of both beef and lamb. And the combination of, you know, that kind of Lamb has more of a presence and, a, you know, a richness to it. And it really worked so well with the oregano and the cumin and the paprika. And it was very different. Like, you know, we're used to kind of the red sauce American-Italian meatballs. And this was such a very different presence on the plate. It was really nice.
0: A simple recipe, but probably one of the best you had on Crete. Uh, Greek meatballs with tomato sauce. Good as a meze, good as a main course. Thank you, Jam. Thank
10: you. You can find this recipe for Greek meatballs with tomato sauce at 177milkstreet.com. This is
0: Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners.
1: Hi, Milk Street. My name is Stacy. My tip is for anyone who makes lots of drop cookies. I'm on the shorter side and I have a tall stainless steel mixer bowl. Repeatedly going from the bowl to the cookie sheet with my scoop feels very awkward. I have my elbow sticking up in the air and it's just weird. So to make it more efficient, I wad up my kitchen towel and I make a ramp with it for the bowl. I tilt my bowl on the towel ramp and now going in and out of the bowl is much easier because the mouth of the bowl faces me and not the ceiling. And this might be helpful if you're making cookies with children too. Cheers.
0: If you'd like to share your own cooking tip here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, it's Dan Pashman. Hey, Dan, what's up? Well, Chris, I'm thinking right now about sandwiches, and I'm a little bit
8: perturbed.
0: Are we doing the definition of a sandwich now or something?
8: No, like no, no, no. we no. moved on. I, I, I love sandwiches. I'm not a vegetarian, but I do sometimes like veggie sandwiches without meat in them especially like if i'm like i don't know at an airport or some random place where i just need some food and i'm like i don't really want the turkey sandwich that's been sitting out in this terminal for god knows how long and i want a veggie sandwich and i'm very upset because i feel like at least in many places in america there are only two kinds of vegetarian sandwiches that anyone seems like anyone's ever heard of you know what they are right there's the one that's like grilled eggplant red pepper and onion with mozzarella and maybe, like, balsamic vinegar. Or it's, like, hummus, feta, olives, red onion. Right. Now, those are both fine sandwiches, but, like, there's so many other options. And I'm just tired of those two, and I want more, like, run-of-the-mill sandwich shops to put a little more effort into having better vegetarian sandwiches.
0: Now, why do you think this is? Because uh, vegetables and vegetarian and vegan cooking have become so popular in the last five years, it just hasn't, it's like trickle-down economics and never trickled down to the sandwich department? Yeah, or I, I think it's probably mostly laziness. It's it's like, you know, these these places say, well,
8: there's more vegetarians now, more demand for vegetarian food, so we need a vegetarian option. Well, there's that one or the other one. That's what everyone does, so just throw one of those on the menu. And it's like, there's this mentality that like by simply having a vegetarian option, no matter how lame and uninspired it is you've checked that box and you yet from a business perspective and a culinary perspective i think that those places are missing an opportunity to be known for great vegetarian sandwiches
0: okay so uh milk streets now hiring you to okay. be the vegetarian sandwich consultant oh I, what this is the do? role
8: i was born to play all right first thing <laughs> one thing that should be in more sandwiches broccoli Oh All right, I, I didn't believe it till I saw it at the number seven sub shop in New York City that it would even work. I, I thought, how do they even keep it in the sandwich? But if you get a nice big sub roll, not sliced bread, but a sub roll, yeah. it will stay in there. It'll stay in there because you don't eat.
0: It. <laughs> no, I love. <laughs> That's I why. love
8: broccoli. I think it's one of the best vegetables. I
0: love broccoli. I eat it like three times a week. But okay, it, what else do you put with it? At, at the number seven
8: sub shop, they do it with pickled lychee and like ricotta salada. It's very oh. nice. I did my own version. At home recently, I had some leftover charred broccoli from the night before with a nice, you know, nice crisp charred edges. And I happened to have a leftover half a loaf of a semolina bread from an Italian bakery. Yeah, I have this sheep and goat milk cheese spread in a jar. And then I also had some feta cheese. And then I really got a little fancy, which is not like me, especially at, at lunch during the week. I toasted some pine nuts. And let me tell you something, Chris, this sandwich is crunchy. It's salty, it's creamy, it's tangy. It has every flavor and texture you could ever want in a sandwich, and it's 100% vegetarian.
0: Here's Dan Pashman, who argues about whether hot dogs is a sandwich, right. and now he's <laughs> toasting pine nuts for his lunch with his semolina bread. Dan, yeah. what's what's going on? Look, the mood comes over me from
8: time to time. I'm not a person who puts a ton of effort into most of my meals. I mean, I, mean, I, I care a lot, but I also am always, you know, like, ideally trying to find maximum deliciousness without spending hours and hours on it. Right. Can I tell you another another broccoli one that I do sometimes? yeah so I'll take a flour tortilla a little shredded mozzarella throw yeah. it in the microwave uh, so the tortilla is soft and doughy and chewy and the cheese melts and then again leftover roast broccoli and spicy chili crisp.
0: Uh, now that okay now you got me. I love, you know, chili crisp is having its day. That's right. So, okay, so uh, one last question. Do you have a non-broccoli vegetarian sandwich? Um, No. (laughs) So you should have titled this segment, How to Eat Broccoli Between Bread.
8: Well, yeah, but let's make broccoli the star of the vegetarian sandwiches. Enough of these mediocre grilled vegetables. You put grilled red pepper in a sandwich, you taste nothing but red pepper. And, and the hummus and feta, you know, one, like, yeah, it's fine. I like hummus, but like that's not a, that's not a lunch. That's a snack, okay? You, you <laughs> fill this sandwich with broccoli and some kind of cheese on a big, hearty sub roll, like, that's something that I can stick my teeth into and I can get behind. Next time I'm in an airport, I want a broccoli sandwich.
0: I think you're right, but you've forgotten the, the key ingredient. What? Prosciutto. Oh, that
8: would be very good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dan Pashman, uh, if you're going to have a vegetarian sandwich, consider the broccoli. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. That's it for today. You know, we've produced over 200 episodes of Milk Street Radio over the years. You can find them all on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. To explore more about Milk Street, please go to 177MilkStreet.com there, you can download our recipes, watch our TV show, learn about our magazine, and our latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. Thanks, as always, for listening.
10: Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsaba, Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis. With production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.